Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, and by now you probably know I am the weekly interviewer and moderator of what is this now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast globally, whether you are watching or you're listening. We hope you have enjoyed our first 170 plus episodes. I have been privileged to write a book about 30 of our first interviews called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, published recently by HarperCollins Leadership and now available in bookstores and online digital retailers everywhere. I took 30 interviews and I selected 30 key podcast episodes and designated a single chapter to each of those 30 people. One transformative insight per chapter. Easy, breezy, fast-paced read. I hope you would enjoy picking up a copy of Master Mentors. It is the first in what will be 10 volumes in the Master Mentors series, already starting to work on volume three out in 2022. Today, my guest is certainly worthy of being a Master Mentor. His name is Ron Carucci, and he's the author of the book, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Joining us from his home office in Connecticut, Ron, welcome to On Leadership. Scott Miller, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Ron, the fact of the matter is most people have a Zoom background like yours, but it's one of those sort of artificial ones in the Zoom library. But yours is actually your lovely home in Connecticut. And you told us off camera that you're kind of a new resident in this home. You're just moving in and your family has one room that is done. And that is the room you are in today. I sort of selfishly co-opted it for my work. Um, while we're busy unpacking boxes and unpacking art and hanging things and renovating rooms. So it's a all wonderful world-class problem to have. Yeah, it's very true, isn't it? I actually love moving into a new home and my marriage has survived that now five times and my wife says it's the last time. So that's a uh, miracle. Yeah, that's a miracle. it is true. Oh. Well, we, we, our, our marriage cannot survive a build. We just move. <laughs> we know that right now. <laughs> Ron, it's a pleasure that you've joined us today. You are a leadership consultant, coach, author, um, leadership expert, many decades in the corporate world with great international experience. We met as members of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches and such. It's an honor to be in the presence of the wisdom that you and others bring in that community. As soon as I met you and listened to you speak on Marshall's weekly uh, uh, calls that are, uh, are uh, designated for those 100 coaches, I knew that I wanted to have you on the podcast. And so for those last few people in uh, podcast world that may not be familiar with your imprint, your influence, before we get into your book, would you take a few minutes maybe and reorient our listeners and viewers to your own leadership journey? Sure. So I am the co-owner and managing partner of, of a boutique firm called Navalent uh, that I and some friends started 16 years ago. And we spend our days traipsing through organizations, working alongside executives, CEOs, division leaders and presidents, helping them through the messiest transformational journeys they, they can encounter. Sometimes it's they've got themselves in a ditch. Sometimes it's an aspiration they want to pursue. But our job is to help partner with them and construct the journey that gets them where they want to go or out of where they don't want to be. Um, when I'm not doing that, I'm busy uh, writing uh, frequently for Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Um, to be honest, this is my ninth book. I'm a gotten for punishment. Uh, and, I, you know, I, my, my career traversed lots of different years, but most of my time has been doing as an organizational psychologist working with organizations. I spent early in my career inside big companies, but after a while I realized that 
my proclivity to want others to be honest got me in some political trouble. So I eventually realized that if I was going to embody my passion for organizations, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. And so I came out into the consulting world and spent some great years at a wonderful firm in New York City. And then eventually, 16 years ago, started the, this firm. And uh, we blink our eyes and here we are 16 years later, you know, still having an impact on the world. And we get the privilege of getting to wake up every day, leaving the world a little bit better than we found it, which is, which is a, an incredible privilege. Ron, obviously Franklin Covey has mutual interest because Stephen M. R. Covey, of course, the eldest son of Dr. Stephen R. Covey, our founder, wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. We have a whole practice built around how to become a high trust leader, how to develop personal trustworthiness, how to build a high trust culture. Why did you choose to dedicate the better part of several years of your life researching and writing and now publishing and speaking on this book about To Be Honest? Was there a particular triggering event or an experience in your own consulting practice that, that channeled your passion on this topic of honesty? Uh, Scott, so we spend our days doing deep diagnostic work and we have 15 years of data that we chose to analyze using some great artificial intelligence technology to look at 3,200 interviews we had done uh, to understand could we predict the conditions under which people would be their best selves, that would tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater good? And under what conditions their lesser, their, their, their dark side might show up and they might choose to lie and cheat and serve their own interests first? I think we're all tired of the Toronto stories. We're all tired of the Wells Fargo's and Volkswagen stories. I think we're all tired of, of the explanations for them. It was the culture or it was a few bad apples. And we don't have to look around too far, Scott Dewey, to see how much trustworthy leadership has gone into a free fall. It's very hard to look around and point to somebody to say, wow, I want to follow that person. That's somebody I want to emulate. That's somebody I trust. And I thought, we can do better. And when the research came back analyzing that 15 years of data, it was a longitudinal study suggesting that we could predict uh, four conditions under which people, in fact, would tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater good, and under which conditions they wouldn't. It was compelling. It was exciting to realize, wow, I spent my whole career holding up mirrors to organizations to say, will you look honestly at who you are? Will you look honestly at the story you're telling yourselves? Um, not the story you wish was true in your head, but the story that's actually playing out in real life. And so I, at first, didn't have a need to write it down, but the data was so compelling and so uh, energizing that I wanted to write the stories of the heroes. I wanted to write the stories of those who are actually embodying the principles of honesty that we found in the book and the research. Um, I wanted to write a book of heroes. And selfishly, I got to meet these heroes. I got to sit in their presence and curate their stories and listen to their brilliant ideas and listen to their experiences and usher those stories to the world. So for me, it was an incredible gift to build this book um, and I'm excited for readers to dig in and, and find their own heroes and people they wish to, they could work for or be like. Ron, the book is rich with so many great stories that inspire us, cause us to reflect, to build our own self-awareness. We're going to talk about some of those in the next half an hour or so. Where I'd like to start, however, is in my favorite part of the book, which is this concept you call Know Your Honesty Story. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to riff on that. But in essence, in this part of the book, you really invite us to get quiet in a reflective spot, take out our honesty journal, whether that's digital or print or vice, and really answer a couple questions. I'm going to kind of just pitch these open-ended to the audience. I'm going to have you clean it up and talk about why 
this is so important to people's character, to their legacy, to their influence, to their culture? These are some of the questions that you ask us to think about as we're reflecting on our own honesty story. As I ask these rhetorically out loud, I want our listeners and viewers just to be thinking about them, and I'll pivot back to you. One is, you say, what are your earliest memories you have about honesty? Who was in the story? What did you learn? Second, what situations draw you to be dishonest or to distort and withhold truthful information, act in self-serving ways? What situations prompt you to be your most honest self, telling the truth and even putting what's hard, doing the right thing, perhaps when it's against your own self-interest? If someone anonymously polled 10 of your closest friends and colleagues and asked them about your honesty, what do you think they would say? Two more. Where in your life have you seen honesty as a redeeming force? And then lastly, what circumstances causes you to lose hope or perhaps even how to regain it? I mean, this is a piercingly insightful exercise to have people really think about, talk about, address, confront, own their honesty story. How did you come up with that? Why is that important? And what would you add to all of that as people are now thinking about these questions? Uh, I love that you read them, Scott. Thank you for doing that. That's uh, it, it reminds me of some of the uh, moments I've had doing those, journaling those questions. You know, I think if you asked and polled any random set of leaders in a company and asked them, if you are you honest? Most would say, well, of course I am. Sure. Um, but the reality is, you know, if you look at the University of Massachusetts study as an example, it suggests that all of us lie on average twice a day. But I, our data, um, both the neuroscience data we studied as well as the forensic data we studied in our, in our longitudinal data, suggest that the definition of honesty is broader than just not lying. Um, so our definition of honesty, truth, justice, and purpose, meaning that you have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. That's the bar to which we're all being held accountable today. Um, it's, you know, the, because our experience of honesty institutionally and from leaders is in a free fall, the bar has gone up higher. So my question to leaders isn't, are you honest? Uh, or are you dishonest? My question is, why are you dishonest? What brings you to your dishonesty? If I asked you, and I do this with my, with my clients and leadership groups frequently, I ask them, just examine privately so that no one has to see this. The last 10 days, I want you to think of moments where you were less than proud about your choices. You mistreated a clerk in a store. You spun information to your spouse or boss. You withheld hard feedback from someone that reports to you. Um, you were short-tempered with your child. You behaved in a way that belied what you would say you valued. I can guarantee you that if you examine those 10 or 12 moments, you will find a pattern. Because most of us are not dishonestly maliciously. I mean, there are a few sociopaths among us, but for the most part, our dishonesty is self-protective. It's not self-interested. We think that by looking a certain way to other people, to be perceived in a certain light, to express frustration in a, in a much more harsh way, meets some need. It meets some need for significance. It meets some need for safety. Um, and we have a narrative that we believe this choice will get this outcome. Of course, that's not actually what's happening, but we've told ourselves that enough that we reflexively choose certain behaviors at certain times in certain conditions. 
You can't improve your honesty until you first understand what brings you to your dishonesty in the first place. For each of us, that requires some deeper self-reflection. It requires um, going back to the origin stories that shaped those narratives in the first place. Some people learned early on that it's really important to please people. It's important to make them happy. And then they learned to do that at all costs. So as they grew up, they wouldn't say hard things to people. They would overly accommodate others and then, and then resent it privately. They would go out of their way to make people happy, even at their own expense. Some people learned early in their life that authority is never to be spoken up to. Others learned authority is never to be trusted. We all learn formative moments um, that may belie things we say we value, that have created habitual or reflexive reactions in certain situations. We all uh, learned that don't look like you don't know the answer. So when someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer to it, you're going to make one up to look the part. The point, Scott, is that each of us have patterns that bring us to places uh, that belie what we say we value. Um, it's not an if, it's a when and it's a why. And so if you really care, and, and then we tell ourselves nobody notices or it's a faceless crime. Well, the reality is those closest to you can decode that pattern. Those closest to you understand and could probably tell you uh, if they were courageous, courageous enough to do it, uh, when you fudge, when you're harsh, when you're self-interested uh, or selfish, um, when you put your own needs above others, um, when you mistreat or disrespect or um, treat others unjustly. If you can be honest about those moments in your life, you can rescript those narratives and make different choices, but you can't do that until you are first honest about your dishonesty. You're an organizational psychologist. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not an ethicist per se. I always struggle with this concept that there's a negative connotation with putting yourself before others, that all leaders are servant leaders, and your job as a leader is to create more leaders, and that you know, if you, if you have any self-interest at all, then perhaps you're self-serving or you are a sociopath. sociopath. Um, uh, you're my big brother today. What guidance would you give me on the, what is the right balance as a leader of people of when is it okay for me to perhaps put my own self-interest first and not always be metaphorically genuflecting to everyone else? What coaching would you give me on that kind of awkward balance and the shame that I feel from reading every leadership book that tells me I can't put myself first. Fabulous question, Scott. And, it, and in fact, it is um, it is a misguided notion to assume that we have to subjugate all of our own needs to others. That's actually modeling for people uh, a level of depletion uh, and and self-deprecation. That's actually very unhealthy. Um, the the issue that I see with many executives is not so much that they struggle to put their own needs first. It's they struggle to acknowledge it. Um, it's perfectly okay to say, I, I need this or want this for this reason. Um, it's when you try and make it look like something else that people feel deceived or distrust you. So you may have a need for, you know, I want to put my hat in the ring for that job. Um, I want to um, drive this particular agenda on our strategy. I want this to be our priority. Um, it is your job as a leader to exert your will. The question is, um, who's pay somebody's paying an invoice for that, right? So if, at, if the frequency is such that others that you lead never feel like their agenda, their needs are, are the top thing on your priority list, then you have a problem. 
So the question, I, I don't know that I want people getting into false calculations of, is it 50-50, is it 60-40? Yeah. People know if you care about them. And being uh, putting your own interests first and caring for others are not false, are not contradictory. You can do both. You can do both at the same time. Uh, so my, my encouragement to leaders is um, trying to fake like you're being a servant leader while sneaking your own needs out of a door. That's when people really feel manipulated. Um, being straightforward about the things that are important to you, the things you want, the things you aspire to, um, that's honest, right? Ambition is a healthy thing, despite many common beliefs. Your own ambitions are as important, and you're setting an example for those you lead to also pursue their own ambitions. The question becomes, when their ambitions show up, how do you treat them? Do you treat them with honor and respect and support, or do you treat them like a threat to yours? Um, so the, the, the notion that servant leadership means some sense of subservience uh, on a all-or-nothing basis it's just false and it's also unhealthy i think the big idea i just took from that is reinforcing in stephen m r covey's book the speed of trust he outlines 13 behaviors of high trust leaders one of them is declare your intent is just you know recognize that you have an agenda and the more you declare your intent openly by even using those words, my intent is, you will then not allow others to ascribe intent to you. You'll be transparent, you'll be honest about, this is my intent, so that others don't suspect malintent or ill intent. And, and the reality is, Scott, we know in today's environment, people are always looking to decode you. They're always looking to ascribe motives that aren't there. Um, I, how many of our executive clients have, have lamented to us that you know words were ascribed to them, quotes were ascribed to them, motives were ascribed to them that were never true? Um, and my, my challenge is always, well, if you didn't, if you didn't uh, tell them what to believe, they're going to make it up. And so leaders have, have got to, you know, the expression I use for that, uh, for declare your intent is lead out loud. You have to lead out loud. You can't assume you get credit for your good intentions. You can't assume that because you mean well, people will automatically assume that you're doing well. I love that phrase. You can't assume that you get credit for good intentions. I like that phrase. I have to remember that. I want to share and address some of the stories, but you dropped a truth bomb about five minutes ago when you were describing this, this, the, the tagline, the subtitle of your book. Your book is titled, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. And you kind of unpacked those. Will you repeat that and re-describe what those three things mean in terms of our intent and our behavior? So that we, 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 we wanted to reconceive the notion of honesty because what we kept seeing in the data was that getting labeled honest was more than just about telling the truth. It was about how you treated others with fairness, with dignity, um, how you helped enable others to be successful. It also meant how you served a greater good and the reasons behind your actions. Could you declare you know, the intent behind your intent? So truth, justice, purpose means saying the right thing, doing the right thing, and saying and doing the right thing for the right reason, truth, justice, and purpose. Um, and what we found, Scott, was that to be labeled honest, you have to do all three. It's you might get labeled a nice person or a kind-hearted person or a well-meaning person if you did one or two of them, but to get labeled with the attribute of honest, um, people are looking for all three of those. Ron, several years ago, I was delivering a keynote somewhere kind of an interactive keynote and audience. And at the end of this hour or two, I asked for key learnings. And I remember there was a gentleman who stood up and his big takeaway 
from not just my keynote, but from his own self-reflection. I'll never forget this. It was, an, it was a black gentleman from Alabama. I just happened to know that because I met him prior to that. I remember him being from Alabama. And he said, my goal is to behave myself into a reputation of being trusted by others. And I'll never forget that because he realized as much as he might think he's trustworthy and being honest, other people have to have that experience. And so he needs to behave himself into, as you mentioned, a reputation of being trusted by others. Uh, Ron, I want to pivot to some of the stories. And, and I may not get the setup right, but um, there's a couple of stories I want you to talk about. One of them is, I'm just going to call it the Angela story. It's a profound story. Will you share what her experience is and how we all can learn from that? So in the, in the section of the book on accountability, uh, uh, where we hold, hold ourselves accountable with dignity and justice, you know, making it fair for others. Angela was uh, the division president of a very large apparel company, and she was a brilliant, hard-driving, results-oriented executive um, and prided herself on you know, being a winner. Uh, and her division was growing. It was the, not only the cash cow of the entire apparel company, but the largest and the most profitable. Uh, one year, Angela, and she was at my client, and got her employee engagement data back. And there had been a dip in some of the scores since the previous 24-month uh, cycle prior. And the dips in the scores were notable in the area of you, um, this organization cares about my development, it cares about my future, you know, that career pathing kind of segment. And she was incensed um, because she, she, she prided herself on investing heavily in talent and making pathways for people, people to grow and caring about people's own um, in, individual aspirations professionally. So she was about to embark on a sort of a get HR on the case and go and get everybody involved and dig up the data and prove how much her division had done for the well-being of people's careers and development. And I cautioned her to say, I, I think that might get you someplace that will feel good to you, but might not feel good to your division. Um, there's, that data is not random and it's not um, uh, capricious. You have to find out why. So I suggested to her that she send her, her five vice presidents out into their own divisions to go do their own sleuthing. I said, don't tell them how to do it. Just tell them that you want them to go out there and find out why people think this is true. She gave them... She gave them a few weeks to do it. They came back, and at the debriefing meeting where they were each going to report out their findings, um, two of the vice presidents uh, reported out, basically with quite a lot of confidence, said, uh, oh, we fixed the problem. They don't think that anymore. We went out and you know, sort of did that, went and got HR's data, and to show how much we actually did uh, to, to care about people's careers and our development. So we went out and presented that to our divisions. And now they understand that we're, we're not as bad at this as that they thought. <laughs> she, she had a little glimmer in her eye of, oh, good. And I'm like, wait, just wait. Two of the other vice presidents, even in a more lazily, lazily turn of events, uh, went out and asked people, hey, do you think we suck at being career developers and development people? And to their... To their delight, people said, no, 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 we're, we're, we're okay with that. So they, they came back and they said, we couldn't find anybody to, to corroborate it. Everybody thinks that, you know, we're as, as confused as we were. So uh, you could see slight senses of false relief starting to set in with Angela until Helen spoke, the fifth vice president. Helen took a quite a different tact than her four peers. She went out and she decided to conduct what she called listening service. She listened, she went out and sort of said, look, I know there's a reason 
you all feel this way. I just don't know what that reason is, but this is not our intent. We want you to feel like we care about your development and care about your futures. I'd love to hear your honest thoughts uh, about your experience that is leading to this data. And she did that in about six or seven different circles of about five to eight people each. And she heard a lot. She heard things uh, about, um, sure, you send us to training programs and then you call us out of them when there's an emergency. Or, yeah, you tell us to write down our development goals, but then there's no time in the day to do them because we're so busy doing all the work. And it wasn't that the division didn't care or talk about um, employees' development. There, there was just no capacity to actually act, ever act upon it in a meaningful way. Uh, it was that there was so performance and results oriented that there was just no time or energy left in the day to actually act upon their own needs. So Helen's reporting this out, um, and you can see that her four peers get a little uncomfortable. Uh, two of the first vice presidents were about to become very dismissive. You can see Angela getting a little bit tense, and we called a break. We said, you know what, let's just take a break. And I took Angela aside, and I said to her, you know, this is a big moment for you. Uh, she gave you a gift in the level of data she brought you. And while you may want to personalize this, this is a moment for you to send a message to your team about a cancer that's growing in your organization, um, a major rift between who you say you are and what you actually do. And she bowed her head and she goes, they are just doing what I trained them to do. They are behaving in ways that I, I let them. And she had this profound personal moment of her own accountability towards shaping an environment she didn't value. She went back in the room, we sat down and she, to the two vice presidents, she, she called it. She said to them, look, uh, as you tell me a story about what you found, I started to get really excited until I put myself into the shoes of the people listening to you talk in those presentations. And I can't imagine how insulting it must have been to have been told by you that they were wrong for feeling what they felt. To the two other vice presidents, she said, I'm sorry you chose to take the easy road and not go be more curious about what we were intending to do than just ask a few tertiary people in the hallway. To Helena, she said, thank you. Thank you for giving us the gift um, of, be, of digging deeper and being caring enough to be curious about why this data said what it said. Now we know. And I take responsibility. This environment is nothing more than I've helped create it to be, and I'm going to change it. And to the four VPs who reported at first, she said, we're all, we're all, including me, we're all going to go do what Helen did. We're all going to go listen to people and hear their stories of how we've harmed them and how we've disregarded them and how we belied our commitment to their development. Yeah. Um, and they unearthed quite a bit of contradiction in their organization about how, what they claimed to value versus what they actually did. It was painful. Um, and it was a year of transformation Angela wasn't planning on. She even went above and beyond the call. She went to the CEO, her boss, and the board of directors in one of her own report outs, and she reported what she had found and reported what they were doing about it, which was a level of public confession. You know, it was a lot of courage to do that. Some of those vice presidents didn't make the journey, not surprisingly, but a year and a half later, they were truly had transformed the division to something that she was proud of. And she felt like reflected the values she wanted to, she wanted to, people to believe in and that she wanted to model. Um, so it was a beautiful example of humility and honesty and accountability that was restorative, accountability that had justice and grace in it.
Ron, thank you for uh, belaboring that because I don't think that's unique to Angela, right? I mean, Angela could be any name of any leader in any organization that has those same kind of moments of truth, so to speak, where you either confront or you deny or you acknowledge, you embrace, you leverage, you learn, all that. Uh, You actually shared this idea of uh, be who you say you are. In fact, you dedicated a whole chapter to it. Be who you say you are. It has both individual and organizational application not just as an individual leader of people, but as an organization. Are you really who you say you are? Will you speak to the millions of leaders at the front line, senior executive level C-suite that are watching and listening to this podcast around the world? How do we know when we are not being who we say we are? What are some key trigger moments? What are some epiphanies that we perhaps are missing and how can we easily or perhaps courageously course correct? So all of our organizations have promises they make. You have a mission statement, you have values, you have brand promises, you have purpose statements. Um, one limit, simple litmus test is to say, when you refer to your company's values, do people roll their eyes? Do they, people, do they sort of nod politely? Uh, or is there, does it make their heartbeat faster? Are they passionate about them? Do they believe that, uh, in fact, those are the ways we actually act around here? Um, Collectively, are you embodying those principles? Have you done the work to look at your organization more closely to understand, are there any contradictions? If you say you value collaboration and teamwork, do you reward individual behavior or do you reward collaboration? If you say you value diversity and inclusion, are you counting the clip art pictures of your workforce or are you actually making sure people have a sense of belonging? Are you actually looking to see, is the playing field really level for everybody? Um, or are there privileged roles? If you're a tech company, how privileged are your engineers? If you're a tech com- if you're a marketing company, how, how how privileged are your brand managers? If you're a high growth company, how privileged are your salespeople? So you have to be ruthlessly scrutinizing of of where there are contradictions in who you say you are and what you do. As an individual leader, you have told people whether you've said it out loud or not. You have told people this is what I value. You know, in in the in the in a moment of emergency. The first question you ask will tell them who you are. You know, there's been a product recall. You know, has there been leaked to the press, or has anybody been hurt? Um, uh, there has um, been uh, a, a major quitting of a, a major talent uh, in our organization. Um, you know, what, did, who did he defect to, or yeah. you know, do we know what we did to make them leave? You, you have put your values on display, whether you intended to do it or not. People are holding up a yardstick. They know when to talk to you about certain problems. They know when they can tell you the truth. They know uh, how to get something out of you. They know, they know your reactions. Um, ask yourself, you know, how, how frequently do people come into your office and tell you something that's uncomfortable for you to hear? I would tell you that if that, that isn't happening, at least once or twice a week, your leadership is weak. Because rest assured, people are telling stories about you at their dinner tables at night to their families and friends. If you don't know what stories they're telling about you, you should want to get in on the conversation. Uh, And that requires your own investigation. It requires you to interrogate how people are metabolizing your values. Again, not your intentions, but your actual values. And if you haven't articulated them to people, if you haven't told people why you value efficiency, or why you value collaboration, or why you value vision, or whatever it happens to be, and tell them how, how you intend to encode that value in your leadership, 
um, you're, you're leaving that to chance that they're going to make it up or worse, they're going to completely miss it. So you're being decoded all, all, all the time. You, you know, as an executive, your life's on a jumbo truck. You, you are out in full vision all the time. It's like you have a bullhorn strapped to your map 24-7. Everything you say and do is amplified. All the more reason why you have got to make sure that the number of versions of you being concocted are, are a minimal few. You can control them all, but certainly making sure that aligning your actions and your words, making sure there is consistency between who you say you are and what you actually do is vital if you want to create an environment where people will freely trust you and freely give you their best work and best ideas. Ron, I once um, had a speech coach. She is still my speech coach. Her name is Judy Henricks. And she helped to build my skills on the main stage, right in front of, you know, five, 10,000 people. And one of, the, one of the key concepts that Judy taught me was how important it is for what you say and what they see to match, which is why oftentimes you have to reverse your gestures, right? You know, you don't do this in front of an audience, you do this because they see it backwards based on how you're doing it. And I think that metaphor sticks with what you just said, is that it's so important as a leader to remember that you are on a jumbotron and you have a megaphone attached to your mouth and everything you say is amplified and that your words and your actions have to match. That's so valuable. Uh, this is why you're in business and why you wrote nine books. Uh, you end your book, and I'd like to end our conversation today with this other story that I'm going to call it the Trap Kitchen story, where you refer to, we'll call him a gentleman named Spank, and you'll fill in the blanks on that, but would you send us off today with the story and the insights we all can take away from Spank and Trap Kitchen? You know, one of the things um, we learned in the, in the research was that um, one of the predictors of dishonesty was border wars. You know, if there are places in your organization where there are disconnects, sales and marketing, supply chain and operations, um, uh, R&D and marketing, HR and picket, um, that those unresolved conflicts, those um, unresolved um, uh, relationships create a risk of their, uh, uh, by a factor of six, you are six times more likely to have people lie and cheat and serve their own interests. But if those seams are stitched well, if if those, there's cohesion at those borders, if there is alignment and a way to resolve the natural healthy tensions that exist there, um, if there is not we, they thinking, but just we, um, now you're six times more likely to have people tell the truth and behave fairly. So I wanted to know, um, where, where is there a story of people who crossed a line, who reached across a border of some kind uh, and turned their they into a we? And I thought, my gosh, if there's any place where there's deeply entrenched we they thinking it's in gangs. So I went to LA and you know, we all know that Los Angeles has a, a painful history of gang, gang, painful gang violence and rivalry for the last 50 years. And I tracked that research. Um, and if you ever have ever read those news stories, you know the Crips and the Bloods are two of the most notoriously rivaling gangs and two of the largest gangs in the United States and attributed to hundreds of thousands of deaths. And I found two gentlemen uh, um, news and spanks with their gang name, uh, who had one was grew up in in the Compton area, grew up in very difficult and uh, uh, dangerous environments. Um, saw their friends get shot. Had to cut school to go to friends' funerals. Got used to walking over bodies in alleys on the way to school. Um, they themselves had spent time in and out of jail. Uh, and got tired of that life and wanted more for themselves. By all accounts, they should have been dead and certainly should have hated each other. 
because there was a time in the height of the gang rivalry in the 80s and 90s where if you had just seen wearing a collar of the other gang, you'd get killed for it. And certainly the, the honor card on the street was if you kill one of mine, I'm going to kill one of yours. Not only should they not have been friends, but they should have detested each other. But they met at a party um, and struck up a friendship. And uh, one of them at, some, at one point after one of his times in jail uh, went off to culinary school in Las Vegas. Uh, he, he called his mom and said, you think this would be a, an honorable profession to cook, learn to cook? I like food. She enrolled him the next day. Off to cooking school, he went. Um, he saw a commercial uh, on TV, didn't he? Like he saw a commercial for the school or something. Is that, was that right? Yeah, he did. He saw a commercial on TV right, right. and went. Um, came back, uh, became quite the reputation for being a good cook um, and would take pictures of his food and put it on Instagram. Um, his partner, who had learned you know, all kinds of business skills for how to make money by selling drugs, um, figured out a way to sell the food. Um, so they posted on Instagram, the food's ready. And I mean, you just look at their website and it's, you just, your mouth waters. And uh, people would come running to the house and line up. They'd be cooking in their grandmother's kitchen or their mother, um, uses mother's kitchen. Um, and one time the cops came thinking that, you know, it was a trap house, like it was a drug place. And they're like, no, no, it's just food. And the neighborhood actually named them Trap Kitchen. And their business was born. Uh, fast for and they and they struggled and built their business and invested in it. And their goal was to build a very credible and thriving business for their neighborhood to be able to provide gourmet, delicious foods at prices that their neighborhoods and the people could afford. Um, to create bosses at a, for people. And they now have eight or nine franchised food trucks. They have a brick and mortar restaurant in Portland. And I went down to uh, Compton for the day, and I spent the day at their food trucks interviewing them and hearing their stories and hearing the, the painful uh, origins of their friendship. But I thought, my gosh, if those two men, uh, now they're, you know, they're, they're committed dads, they're in their early 30s, um, if those two men could defy the odds of reaching across the kind of boundaries they had to traverse to build a partnership like that, there is no excuse for anybody else in any organization, any neighborhood, any political difference to say, you know, uh, I have to have a they. I challenge leaders all the time, and I'll challenge our listeners today, Scott, who is your they? Who is the one who, when they call you for help, the, the partner in another function that you have to collaborate with, that when they call, you roll your eyes. You're, you hate seeing them in the call ID. And also, whose they are you? Take the, have the courage to pick up the phone, send an email, and get coffee with them and say, I think we can do better. How can I be a better colleague to you? How can this partnership that we know is struggling, if we're honest, um, be better? What kind of example do we want to set for the people we're leading? How can we stitch the scene between us so that it produces the value and the impact we want it to? I guarantee you that if you do that, you, you will see exponential levels of passion, performance, and uh, outcomes you can't imagine. I love this question. Who's your they and whose they are you? Because you're on both sides of that coin. Ron Carucci, what an honor to have spent our time with you today. Your book is, to be honest, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose out just in May. The a prolific author of numerous books. It's remarkable to see all people that have endorsed your book. I mean, it's a who's who. Uh, thank you for your time today. We wish you the best of success in the journey that you're on is a noble one, one that we are very passionate about, as is our co-founder, Stephen R. Covey. Thank you again for your time today, Ron. Stephen, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for your help in getting the word out. Really appreciate all that you do in the world to, to make better leaders. Thank you. It's our passion. It's our mission. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you back here next week for another conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.